All right, well, we have a divine mandate to study Christology. Jesus was concerned about it. Who do you say that I am? He asked his disciples. And as we learned our very first week, there's nothing better we could do with our time than to think about, study, dive a little deeper into understanding who Christ is. And we've come quite a ways already, but we're just barely getting started. So tonight, before we go any further, after that great meal, was that not good? You didn't like it? No? No smiles down here in the front? Didn't like it? Oh, okay. We need to thank God for that, and we'll thank God. Hopefully, we'll get, get you fed here tonight in the Word. So let's pray. God, we thank you for the privilege that we have to gather together, to be able to look at your word, as I think often, just to have the privilege of a printed Bible in our hands, the ability to read, the ability you give us to think and to reason. And God, we know that all of that capacity that we have is absolutely impossible for us to appraise or discern spiritual things unless your spirit gives us that. You call us spiritually dead without your spirit. And so, God, we ask that we would be uh, not only alive in Christ because of our our, our glorious and, and, and privileged and grace-filled standing before you in Christ, but that you would give us extra grace to be able to understand and comprehend something about what Christ said and what he did and how it makes such an important difference as we think through the issues of Christology. God, as we continue to move a little bit deeper each week and get into some issues that uh, have been debated and, and, and discussed and, and hotly uh, uh, debated at times and throughout church history, may you give us a, a kind of peaceful resolve about the truth. Let us not be driven and tossed by every wind of doctrine. Let us be grounded in the truth about who Christ is, what your word says about who Christ is, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right. Now, so much of what we talk about cannot be divorced from where we've been in understanding the reliability of the text of the Bible. And uh, I can't overemphasize that. If someone jumps into any discussion about pneumatology, Christology, theology proper, if we don't have an understanding of bibliology, uh, you know, then all of this is for naught because you're always going to wonder, well, is the word historically reliable? Do we have something that we are grounding uh, these doctrines on that we can trust is a word from God? So if you haven't been through that, some of you are new to Compass Night. I remember the hands that went up the first night. Uh, get that series. All of it's free. You can get it on your, your, your iPod or whatever you use to, to stream or download the MP3s. It'd be good for you uh, to go through that 13-week series so that you know that what we're dealing with when we look at passages of Scripture uh, is indeed what God has said. He has inscribed His voice on the pages of Scripture, and it is good for us to refer to it now in every other discipline and study to know what God has told us. But tonight, we need to start... Uh, as we think through uh, the nature, we're kind of transitioning from, now from the incarnation to the nature of who Christ is. And we want to deal with tonight the, uh, the divinity of Christ. And to do that, we need to start with the claims of Christ. And I noticed when we were all done that we didn't have the concept of the deity or the divinity of God anywhere on the page there. So you may want to sketch that in. We're talking about the claims of Christ about his divinity, about him being God. 
And we want to look at those, and there's lots we could say. There's hundreds of pages we could print and talk about, but I'm going to scratch the surface, then give you another good book of the week, and you can go further uh, in this study. But let's start by turning in our Bibles to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. This is an important place for us to start, and it is full. I mean, if we did a series of messages on the divinity of Christ, this would be one you could spend several weeks on, just diving deeper into exactly what Christ is getting at throughout this entire discourse. But let's start jumping into the middle of it in verse number 42, John eight forty-two, And we'll go through uh, 58 or even 59. John eight forty-two says, Jesus said to them, if God were your father... You would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not on my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? Well, it is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? I mean, I've already got so many things, the preexistence of God. Now he's talking about the the sinlessness of his nature. Uh, More on that in weeks to come. But for now, if I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. That's what he's speaking The reason why you do not hear them is that you're not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? See, they they hated the Samaritans. They were worse than the Gentiles. That's the biggest put down you could come up with. And now, you know, you're you're possessed or, or indwelt by a demon. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it. That's an interesting point. We'll look at that later tonight. And he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you do not know him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. And Jesus said to them, note carefully here now, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I was. Is that what it says? No. That's what we would expect if we're talking about preexistence. He says, I am. So they pick up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Jot this down, letter A. He claimed to be, I am. (laughs) And that has a tremendous loaded importance throughout the scriptures from the beginning of that burning bush experience that came through the messenger of the Lord, if you remember, the angel of the Lord. 
Now let's sort through some of this. This phrase, ego ami, and perhaps that's not new to you, ego ami is a very technical, strong, clear, overstated way to say I am. Could have said I am a different way. He says I am in the strongest, most technical, most uh, uh, formal way he could possibly say it. Ego ami. Uh, I and the verb to be in the first person form. I am the I am. That's who I am. Now, in Exodus 3.14, you'll remember that Moses asks God, the angel of the Lord, who's speaking in the first person as God and later identifies himself in verse 15 as the Lord, Yahweh. He says, uh, Moses says, who am I supposed to say sent me? Remember that? And God says in that text, tell him I am who I am. As formal and strong and as, as, as clearly and emphatically as he could say what he said, which is exactly what Jesus is saying in the most formal way he could possibly say it. Now, the Hebrew word here, which is compounded together, is hayah. It is the verb uh, to be. It, it, and it is stated in a, in a compound way, the same way that we find in the Greek language. And before there was ever any debates about the divinity of Christ, the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek because Alexander the Great, uh, what a name, Megos, Alexandros, the, the, the great one, the Mega Alex, uh, the conqueror of the 4th century B.C., uh, wanted to build this great library in Alexandria, Egypt. And in building the library, of course, we needed all the important books. And so one of the very important books he had to translate from Hebrew into Greek was the Old Testament, the, 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 the Bible of the Jews. So he commissions 70 scholars to work on this. Thus, the abbreviation, if you're with us in Bible introduction or bibliography, uh, bibliology, you'll know that is represented by the Roman numerals LXX. The Septuagint was translated between the 3rd and 2nd century B.C. This is two, 200 years before Christ. And it's very helpful for us in any New Testament study to watch how Old Testament words were turned into Koine Greek before Christ came. Okay? So in the text, if you were to read a Greek translation, the Septuagint, translated before Christ came, which was the Bible of the day in Israel... I mean, that's what they spoke, by and large. They were trilingual, usually. They could speak Aramaic and formal Hebrew, perhaps in the, in the synagogue and, and the temple. And then, of course, Koine Greek, which was the lingua franca of the day. Everyone spoke it in the marketplace. That Bible that they were using, if you were to look up Exodus 3.14, of course, it's in Greek now, you're going to find the phrase, ego ami. Who do you say that I am? Or, I'm sorry, who do I say sent me? And in Greek, in the Hebrew Old Testament, translated into Greek, same exact phrase. It's the first revelation of God to Moses who would bring the law to the people. And he identifies himself in one of the most dramatic and important launching of the writer of the Bible with the name Ego ami, very formalized way to state 
I am that I am. I am who I am. And that's my name. Ego and me. We need to talk about, a little sidebar now, God's proper name. There's a lot of white space under number one here, is there not? And if you've been through this with me before, then you can lean back, digest your taquitos and guacamole. But if you're new, we've got to go through this. Just to, to, to figure out a little bit about God's proper name. So sidebar here a little bit. The name Yahweh is God's proper name. In Exodus 3.14, he says, I am who I am. I am that I am. I am the ever-existing one. And then he gives his name in the next verse. He says, I am Yahweh. And he gives us this, this name. More on that a little bit later, but you, what you need to understand, at least, is that the word Yahweh is, the root of it is, the Hebrew w- verb to be. It is, it, they are cognates. The proper name of God is a build on the word I am, Yahweh. It is translated in our Bibles into English, capital L, small case O, small case R, I'm sorry, small cap O, small cap R, small cap D. Sometimes you're reading in your Old Testament and you have capital L, small O, small R, small D, small case. That's not the word Yahweh. But some 6,828 times in the Old Testament, you will have a capital L, which is just a little bit taller, than a smaller capital O, and a small cap R, and a small cap D. You've noticed that, right? Every time you see that, that's the proper name of God. It is not his... Uh, his, his his position, it's not describing his role, it's not describing his job, it is his name. Um, examples of that is the very next verse, Exodus 3.15, where God says to Moses in verse 14, I am who I am, I am that I am, and he said, say to the people that I am has sent you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I'm to be remembered throughout all generations. This is my name. And my name is Yahweh. And if you want to know who sent you, the I am, the ever existing one has sent you. Proper name built on the verb to be in Hebrew, Yahweh. The word Adonai is the Hebrew word that translates in our Bible, Lord, with the small o, small case r, small case d. Not small cap, but small case. When you see that in the Bible, some 442 times in the Old Testament, it is distinguished from the capitals, right? The small case is distinguished from the small caps, okay? For instance, Exodus 5.22 When Moses turned to Yahweh and says to him, O Adonai, why have you done bad to these people? Why did you send me? He starts complaining. Adonai is his title. Yahweh is his name. And at work, maybe like at my work, you have a title, you have a name, obviously, that you were given. And my title is pastor and my name is Mike. 
And sometimes they call me Pastor Mike. Sometimes they refer to me as just Pastor. Sometimes they refer to me as Mike. One is my title. One is my proper name. Adonai is his title. He is the Lord. He's in charge of the universe. And his name, his proper name, Yahweh, which is built on the verb to be, is God's proper name. Now, let's let's put this to rest if it hasn't been in your mind already. The word Jehovah, right? As in Jehovah Witnesses or all the great hymns that use the word Jehovah, right? Or your Sunday school class, when you learned all the names of God in the Old Testament, Jehovah Jireh, right? Things like that. Jehovah, okay? That's translated in your Bible, if you have a King James Version, only four times. And it's translated, unfortunately, from zero occurrences in the Hebrew language. (laughs) There are no examples of that. Actually, there is no such word. Well, it sure is popular for not being a word, Pastor Mike. It's been around. We've named, you know, cult groups after it. I mean, how do we do this if it's not a word? I want it in your mind, at least, to jettison the word Jehovah, and I'll show you why it came to be, and understand there are just two words when we think of the word Lord or Yahweh and try and make sense of those and distinguish those. So let's work through this just a little bit. The word Jehovah is a conflation of the word Yahweh and the word Adonai. Those two Hebrew words were conflated. They were smashed together. And they created a word that doesn't exist, and that word is Jehovah. There is no such word. Okay? Well, how did you create a word that doesn't exist? Well, it doesn't exist in the Hebrew language, at least. Okay? Here's our word, Yahweh. Okay? It is what we call the tetragrammaton. The tetragrammaton are the four sacred letters that represent God's sacred name. They are written in Hebrew texts, even texts that have all of the completed and fancy calligraphy and all the vowel pointings, more on that in a second. Uh, This word never occurs with vowel pointings. This word doesn't have vowel pointings. It's just a bare word, okay? Yahweh. The word Adonai, like any other word in Hebrew that was carefully vowel-pointed, because Hebrew has no vowels, no vowel characters, they're all consonants, those were added by the Masorites, 9th century B.C., to be able to help people vocalize the language if they didn't grow up with the language. As a matter of fact, if you're a kid in Israel, if you go to the, you know, the, the Barnes & Noble equiv- equivalent in, in, in Ben Yehuda Street in, in Jerusalem, and you look through the bookstore, only the little kids' books will have vowel pointings on them because that is to help beginners learn the language. Or any Bible student, when we go to learn Hebrew, we, we have to learn with vowel pointings. In any Bible that's printed, because most of us are reading it as a second language, we have vowel pointings. And Adonai, of course, has vowel pointings. This is the word Adonai. And, of course, it reads not from uh, left to right. I'm trying to always do this backward for you, uh, but from right to left. Actually, left to right, not right to left. We read from right to left. They read from left to right, which for you is the... We read from left to right. God reads from right to left. Okay? Is that, that how I meant to say it? I learned early as a preacher to try and do everything with the hand gestures backwards. And when I'm trying to do things like Hebrew backwards, then it's a double backwards and it doesn't work. 
So, so Adonai is written with vowel pointings. Okay, Adonai is his title, like the word pastor, and Yahweh is his name, like the word Mike, just to keep our illustration alive here. Okay, now, when the text in Hebrew, at any synagogue or, or, or any place in the temple, when you had a text that read in the text some 6,800 times, Yahweh, okay, the Jews would read or vocalize out loud and still do the word Adonai. If you go to a bar mitzvah or you go to a, a, you know, the, the temple Bethel and you start listening to the cantor or the, the rabbi reading, when the text reads some 6,800 times Yahweh, they don't say the word Yahweh. They don't vocalize the sacred name. They say the word Adonai. Okay? To help with that, what began to happen in the history of the text is that they would take the vowel pointings from the word Adonai and they would put them on top of the vowel of the consonants for Yahweh so that the reader would say, don't say Yahweh, say Adonai instead. But we want to show that the word Yahweh is there, so we'll keep the consonants there, but we'll throw the vowel pointings for Adonai on top of the consonants of Yahweh so the reader will say, okay, now I know I'm supposed to say Adonai. Okay? To prompt this, the Masoretes put the vowel pointing of Adonai on the consonants of Yahweh. Okay? So, if you want to read the word Yahweh, it's Yov, Hey, Wah, or Vav, depending on who you study with. Hey, Yov, Hey, Wah, Hey. Yo, hey, wah, hey. Okay? The vowel pointings for the word Adonai are, reading again from left to right, uh, left to right, right, <laughs> reading from right to left are the reduced pathic, the holum, right, over the dalit, and a comets, a sound, right, under the noon. So, those are the vowel pointings. Now watch what happens. Okay? If you throw them on top of Yahweh, you take the reduced pathic, which is an A sound, but it's an A letter, a vowel with an E sound. It now goes between the Yoth and the hay. The holum gets thrown between the hay and the wa, and the comets gets thrown between the wa and the hay. Now if you're... Did you catch all that? If... If you're a Jew, you would never say that because those vowel pointings are simply just prompts to say the word Adonai. But of course, some second language Hebrew readers would see that and say, I know what that word is. Well, I don't know what it is, but I'll sound it out. And it's Yehovah, right? So Jehovah because, of course, we lost the Y sounds in Hebrew when they went through German and into English, and we got the words Jehovah out of a conflation of Yahweh and Adonai. Now, that's more information than you'll ever need at the workroom at lunch this week. <laughs> but it will help you understand next time you hear the word Jehovah to know, I get it. It's not really a word. It's the conflation of Adonai and Yahweh. And you saw how it worked. Now, here's the problem. Just like often it's addressed to me in the hallways of the church, what happens when we have this combination of words, right? Adonai, Yahweh. 
Because you're thinking, you're not just going to call him Mike and not just going to call the guy, you know, pastor. You're sometimes going to call him Pastor Mike. Then what do you do? And because in our English translations, they're not giving us the word Yahweh, then we got to do something because I got this little code to figure out whether it's Yahweh, God's proper name, or whether it's Adonai, his title. See, this Adonai-Yahweh combination, they translated in your ESVs, and I'm glad they do it this way. I'm not, I mean, I'm not super glad, but I'm better, it's better than the NIV. They, they will translate it Lord, which is Adonai, and instead of saying Lord, Lord, they'll say God, but then they'll put the small cap O and the small cap D. Do you see that? You'll find that in your Bibles 144 times in the Old Testament. Why do I say it's better than the NIV? Do any of you remember, you Sunday school grads, how the NIV translates this? Nobody? Sovereign Lord, right? Which I thought was quite a, a, a leap, and they had reasons for it. But I prefer what the ESV has done, and that is, let's just call it Lord God. I would prefer we just, you know, said Lord Yahweh, which is what it says. Um, but anyway, examples of that, I just, just to round out the examples, Exodus Twenty-three, seventeen, And if you were to look at that in your ESV, you should find Lord with a small case, O-R-D, and a small cap, O-D, after the G in God. Now, you've got to distinguish, I guess, if you want to just round out this entire discussion, the words Lord God when you have the capital... What is it when it's capital L... Small cap O, small cap R, small cap D, and then it's G, capital G, of course, small case O, small case D. What is that? That's Elohim, right? So that's when it's Yahweh Elohim or Elohim Yahweh, Lord God. That's the real Lord God. But the Lord Lord or the Lord Yahweh looks like that in your text. Okay? Okay. So what? Well, perhaps this will help. The claims of Christ. Christ not only called himself the I am, which again, if you have a little bit of that background in your mind, you're going to say that was huge for you to say that. You said what God said in the most sacred moment of revealing his divine name. You used that name. You lifted it right out of the Septuagint and you applied it to yourself. Not just that you pre-existed Abraham, but you pre-existed Abraham as the ever-existing one that is the I am. That's a big, big deal. That's a slam dunk right there. Well, what divine titles did he accept? Well, let's start with this. Yahweh, translated in our Bibles, Lord. Okay, If you go into the Septuagint, you don't have Yahweh, of course. What's it translated? It's translated kurios. Kurios in Greek is the Greek word, translates Lord, And it is the word that if you look in the 6,800 times the word Yahweh shows up in the Hebrew text, if in Alexandria's library and the 70 scholars are translating, what word are they using in Greek to translate the divine name? They're using the name Kyrios. That then becomes, if you're an Old Testament Sabbath school graduate in the first century and you're reading the Septuagint, you're going to find the word Kyrios translated some 6,800 times for the word Yahweh, God's proper name. Now, in the New Testament, 
When New Testament writers are quoting the Old Testament, if that's the case, well then obviously, when the Hebrew text is being quoted, or the Septuagint is being quoted, every time we're referring to God in His proper name, the word Kyrios shows up. What is the most common title in the New Testament for Jesus? It is the word Kyrios, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus. Now some will say, well, I know enough about the word Kyrios to know that sometimes it refers to other things besides Yahweh. So it's not a, de- not a done deal, because even Jesus gives parables and He talks about the, 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 the master over the stewards and He calls them the Kyrios. Well, He doesn't call them the Kyrios in that sense. right? And it is a term that is used besides for Christ, but primarily it is used for Christ and it's used not just in a sense of a Lord over the estate or a Lord over the stewards. It's used in a very distinctive way as the Lord, which won't convince a lot of the people at your door, but it is telling. Well, did I give you, what did I give you here? Some passages to look up, right? Uh, Matthew 21. For instance, and this is just Jesus referring to himself, and he says, go get the, uh, the, the, the animal for me to ride on into the city of Jerusalem. It is Palm Sunday. And he says, if anyone asks you, anyone asks you, uh, you know, what, what is this all about? You're to tell them, not a Lord, which would, meet, which would be the way you would expect. We're talking about an, a manager of an estate, a, you know, a, a respected person. But, but this, is, this is the kind of phraseology you would expect if we're talking about something other than just, you know, the, 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 you know, a pastor. No, this is the Lord. The Lord has need of it. Or Luke 2.11. Luke 2.11. This is a familiar one. I didn't write this one down because I ran out of space. But you remember this. Uh, this is the angel's announcement. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, what? The Lord, right? He's not Christ a Lord, Mr. Christ. He's Christ the Lord. Which when you use the word curios, let me put it this way. I, I, I didn't do the count on this, but in the book of Matthew alone, before you get to Jesus, he refers to himself as curios by the seventh chapter of Matthew. We've already had the word curios used multiple times. I'm guessing 15. Let's just throw a number out there. And every time it's used before Matthew 7, Lord is referring to Yahweh. Then he begins to teach the Sermon on the Mount and he gets near the end of it and he talks about himself when people come to me on that day and they say, curios, curios, Lord, Lord. I mean, that's a major shift now. Now I've gone from using that word that has been translated over 6,000 times in the Old Testament for Yahweh, and you are now appending that and bringing that to yourself and using that to describe yourself. That was big. That was big. You don't find Peter taking on a title like that. You don't see Bartholomew walking around talking about himself as the Lord. I put down John 20, 28. This one you should turn to, I, I suppose. We've got lots to turn to tonight, but... Since there's nothing else to write, unless you're perfecting your Greek characters. Hebrew's more fun to write, though, isn't it? No? I didn't get any takers on that. Okay. You didn't even try. Did you try? Some of you tried. John 20. He said to Thomas, put your finger here. This is Jesus, right? After his resurrection, proving that he's not a phantom or a ghost. See my hands? 
Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Verse 28, Thomas answered him. Again, my curios and my theos. And Jesus said to him, my, my Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, you have believed because you've seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And again, the combination of the words Lord and God, some 144 times in the Old Testament, is a common connection. And by the way, if you were to open up a Septuagint, what would you find when we see the words Adonai Yahweh, you'd see the words Kyrios Theos, Lord God, right? And that's how this word is being tossed around. I think it's often overlooked. I read a lot of stuff that doesn't even deal with this much, but uh, some guys thankfully do. But I think it's important for us to recognize it's no small thing that Jesus is known as the Lord and that he's called things like my Lord and my God. That's a big, big deal. And if you have an Old Testament background, that's huge. Here's another one, and I could pick a lot of titles. As a matter of fact, I went through my file. I got tons of stuff on all the titles of Christ, and, and, and I could present a bunch of those, and we could laundry list them out. But I thought I'd pick two that weren't very often discussed. One is Kyrios, or the Lord for Yahweh, and the second one is this phrase, the Son of Man, which seems to most to be a lesser title than Son of God. And we could deal with that. We just don't have time to deal with all the names and titles that point to divinity. But let's at least look at this one, Son of Man. And I often throw this out whenever we see it, and I, I quickly will say something like Daniel 7. Well, we need to turn to Daniel 7 and see what this is all about. Son of Man, Daniel chapter 9, verses 9 through 14. If you know Old Testament theology, you start to recognize this is a very, 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 very bizarre statement. If you know Old Testament biblical history, this becomes even more frightening. If there's one thing that the post-exilic Jews understood, it's you never bring God down. Matter of fact, it's one of the reasons we say that Jesus didn't come on the scene and say repeatedly, hey, I'm God, hey, I'm God, I'm God. Why didn't he do that? Every time he even hinted at that, they picked up stones to stone him. Because after the Babylonian exile, when they started to recognize that their, their, view, their high view of God became a lower view of God, they came through the exile and said, we will never take God off that high and exalted place ever again. At least that was the commitment they had. And there was that sense of let's not... Um, ever bring him to a place, what they like to say, of, of, of anthropomorphizing him. Let's not make him more like us. Let's make sure that he's the transcendent God. Daniel's right in the middle of all this. Daniel's been taken captive to Babylon. He's having these visions. And if you want to talk about a statement that would make no sense in Old Testament theology, it would be this discussion about someone called the Son of Man. Daniel 9 verse, I'm sorry, Daniel 7 verse 9. As I look, thrones were in place. And the Ancient of Days, which again, we could go off on how the Ancient of Days is used to describe Christ himself in Malachi. And I mean, this was a title that would be appended to him. But anyway, the Ancient of Days takes his seat and his clothing was white as snow and hair of his head was pure wool and his throne, which by the way, those are images now applied to Christ in the book of Revelation. I'm talking about more things that point to his divinity. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and thousands and thousands served him. And ten thousand times ten thousand stood be times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. 
And I looked then, and, and because of the sound of the great words, and the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed. And you've got to get the context for all that. It's a head-scratcher even when you know the context. But its body was destroyed and given over to be burned with fire, and the rest of the beasts and their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. That's a key phrase became a very interesting point of discussion for the rabbis and, and, and trying to figure out what are we dealing with here. This is very bizarre. Like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now you read that from a Christian perspective and you say, well, yeah, that's Christ. You read that from a Jewish perspective, you're going, where do I file that? The God who will not give his glory away. He will not share his glory with any. A God who receives all praise, all glory, all honor, who possesses all dominion, whose sovereignty is all his and his throne alone. I mean, the book of Isaiah alone is all about the exclusive sovereignty and dominion of God. And now I've got one like a son of man who comes and gets all of this. And and this is not partial. Look at it again in verse 14. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, everyone created, all nations and languages should serve him. Who who am I supposed to serve according to the law in Deuteronomy, or I'm sorry, Exodus chapter uh, 20? God. I only serve God. I don't serve a a man. Well, he's not just a man. He's, He's like a son of man. And everyone should serve him, and every dominion, all power should go to him, and his kingdom is one that will be eternal. It will not be destroyed. Now, some of this might make more sense when you start reading passages. Oh, there you go. Isaiah 42, 8 is one example. I am Yahweh, that is my name. My glory uh, I give to no other. Statements like that. You get those kinds of statements, and we could quote them for half an hour And you start reading this and you say, well, what is this? How does this work? If there's one God and that God should be served alone and that God and only that God has power and dominion and his dominion is forever. Just read the Psalms. How do we get someone like a son of man proceeding from heaven on a cloud who gets all of this? This doesn't make sense. Unless, of course, God is not just a a, a singular person person, but he is a triune fellowship. And we're talking about one who makes the invisible visible and all deity dwells in him in bodily form. If we're talking about the Christ now, Matthew 25, 31 and 32, you start thinking about how God is exclusively the monarch of the universe, shares his glory with no one. And you start now thinking about this one mysterious statement, the, the son of man. Now you put Jesus on the scene and he starts saying things like this. Everything starts to come together. And if you don't like to accept who Jesus says he is, then your, your gaskets blow like they do here at the end of the book of Matthew. Verse 31, are you with me on this? When the Son of Man comes in His glory, now again, the one who gets glory is supposed to be God, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne, 
And before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. But he is now in authority over them all. We'll go to the next chapter, Matthew chapter 26. When he's about to be crucified, Jesus says in verse 64, Matthew 26, 64 through 66. Jesus said to him, he's standing here on trial. You've said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man, which, by the way, is his favorite title for himself. More than, more than Son of God, this he loves this phrase, the Son of Man, because from this Old Testament passage that was somewhat cryptic, who is this Son of Man? He comes on the scene saying over and over again, I'm the Son of Man. And most of us think, well, that seems lesser than the Son of God. No, you've got a bigger divinity claim in the phrase Son of Man than you do in the phrase Son of God if you put it in its Old Testament theological context. That's why you see the reaction this way from the high priest. Are you with me now, Matthew 26, 64? From now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, that ancient of days, and coming on the clouds of heaven. Couldn't it be any clearer, right? That's Daniel, Daniel 7. Then the high priest tore his robes and he says, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You've now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answer, he deserves death. Why? Because he's just made the most outrageous claim of all, that he is this one who receives all dominion, all power, all glory, a kingdom that never ends. Son of man, more a statement of divinity than we think. So I chose those two to take time on as our time quickly ebbs away. A couple more things. C. Is this on the back now? Wherever we're at. He accepted worship. Now again, I'm just, we're talking about claims now. Just claims. He accepts worship. Why is that a big deal? Exodus 34, 14. You don't need to turn there. You know it. It's the, it's the restatement of the Decalogue. It's very clear. You shall worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. So God is jealous. He doesn't want any worship going to anyone else. He shares his glory with no one. No one else should be worshipped. You try to worship an angel, he'll slap you on the head and say, stop it. We don't do that. Right? That's the biblical picture from the beginning of the Bible to the end with a one gigantic exception, this son of man who seems to be quite comfortable with it. As a matter of fact, his life starts, you don't need to turn to this one either because you know it, Matthew 2, 1 and 2, these magi from the east come and they say, we've seen his star and we've come to, what? Worship him. (laughs) Can you imagine the Jews? That's like fingernails on a chalkboard. What are you talking about? There's a baby born in Bethlehem and you've come to worship him. No, you don't do it. And Matthew's holding this up in the beginning of his book, which is written, you know, a a book written to Jewish people about the Jewish Messiah. And the first thing he says about this baby Jesus, as he's growing up in this home, he's less than two years old and people come to worship him. That's another gasket blower, unless you divorce it from its biblical context, which is you don't worship anybody but God. Well, he's a little toddler. I mean, come on. How can he approve this? Well, how about this one? John 5, 21 through 23. You've got to turn to this one. John 5, 21 through 23. Now you can't claim he's a toddler and he didn't know. And I don't know, Mary should have stopped him, but she didn't. She's a mom. It's busy. You know how it is with kids. I mean, Joseph was at work and... I, 
sorry we did we didn't mean to have magi worship him well jesus now is all grown up john 5:21 for as the father jesus speaking red letters right you red letter bible people for just as the father raises the dead and gives them life so also the son gives life to whom he will the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, comma, verse 23, that all may honor the Son, pathos, very important, just as, just like, to the same extent as they honor the Father. Again, you're hearing what? Blasphemy. Just like you hear if the Son of Man gets all the dominion and power and glory and, and, and all of this goes to Him, how in the, that, oh, God only gets that. Now you're going to say, you want us to honor you the way we honor the Father? Nothing could be more blasphemous than that. Whoever does not honor the Son, by the way, doesn't honor the Father who sent Him. And if you don't worship Christ, that's why we worship Christ on the weekends, right? With our music, hopefully you worship Him every day. You can't even honor the Father unless you're honoring the Son. Which, by the way, brings great pleasure to the Father, according to Philippians chapter 2. Right, when every tongue confesses and knees bow, right, it's all done to the glory of God the Father. So God, who said don't worship anybody else, is now very happy when you worship someone else. What's with that? That someone else must not be a holy other someone else. This must be part of this weird divine un, you know, calculatable trinity thing. Now, these are the two examples. You don't need them if you know them. But Acts 14 and Revelation 22... Acts 14 is when they tried to bow down and worship Paul and Barnabas. And they said, sure, because we're trying to be like Christ. We want to imitate Christ, so worship us because we worship Christ. Is that what they said? No. They, were, they tore their clothes. They were like, no, you can't do this. Please don't do this. Don't worship us. While, by the way, they're busy worshiping Jesus. Revelation 22, 8 and 9, this is when John falls down and he's just overwhelmed with all that's happened. The angel gives him this. He falls at his feet to worship. And the angel says, no, don't do it. You must not do that, exclamation point. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers and the prophets. Worship goes to God. But he accepts it. Hmm. Another one. He did divine things. Now we're on the back of the worksheet, are we not? He forgives sins. Why is that a big deal? Jot this one down. Psalm 103. Psalm 103, verses 2 through 4. Very clearly, you, don't, you know this one too, you don't need to... Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all of His benefits. Whose benefits? Yahweh's benefits. What are Yahweh's benefits? First thing on the list, He forgives all your iniquities. He heals your diseases, redeems your life from the pit. He's the one who saves you. He's the one who forgives you. Who forgives sin? Well, if you're a Jew, you know oh, there's only one that can forgive sin. God forgives sin. Even when you sin against someone... The forgiveness needs to come ultimately from God. That's why, here's another one, Psalm 51.4, when David had sinned with Bathsheba, and that's the title of the psalm, when David went and sinned with Bathsheba, he says, again, you and you only have I sinned, and he's not talking to Uriah's you know, headstone, and he's not talking to Bathsheba. He's not talking to Uriah's brother or family. He says to God, Yahweh, against you and you only have I. So when we sin, every sin, no matter if it's against anybody laterally, is ultimately a sin against God. Therefore, the only person that can bring the benefit of forgiveness is God because you've sinned against God. God is the one who forgives. That's the Old Testament theology. We could go on and on and show examples of that. Yet in Mark 2, 6 through 12, let's look at that text. 
Mark 2, 6 through 12, you have this exchange going on. I should have added verse 5, 5 through 12. Paralytic, can't walk. Jesus saw their faith. He said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, just to make it clear, everyone understood what was happening. Verse 6. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. This was a question going on in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. You know what blaspheming is, right? You're attributing to man or someone else or yourself something that belongs to God. That's what's happening here. You're blaspheming. For who can forgive sins but God alone? The scribes were right. They're in the Bible every day. That was their job. They knew the right answer to that. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they had thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say the paralytic... Your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. Now, a lot of people don't answer the question, but the question should be answered. It's easier for you to make a guy who can't walk, walk than for you to somehow relieve a debt before God. It's it's, you can't. But just so that you know, verse 10, that the son of man, that's no mistake. What's that? That's a divinity claim. The Son of Man, the image of the invisible God, the one in bodily form where the whole deity dwells, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were amazed and glorified God, saying, we've never seen anything like this before. They were impressed with the wrong thing, obviously. But the point is, how how did this happen? That someone, the Son of Man, who has all dominion, all authority, and all peoples are supposed to give their service to him, is forgiving sins. He must be more than a man or a prophet. By the way, did you notice in this text he's reading minds? He's a mind reader. Just a side note here, but that's a big problem. Big problem because 1 Corinthians 2.11 says no one should be able to do that if they're human. And if anybody tries, Deuteronomy 18.10, 11 and 12, then they're supposed to be stoned to death. So there should be no mind readers. And Jesus is clearly claiming to have that. That's another argument we don't have time for. But he did some divine things. Okay, he made some outrageous claims. And he did so far some divine things. What were they? Well, he accepted worship and he forgave sins. And I'm saying this to you tonight, easy. I could do that. I could. I could claim to forgive your sins. A lot of guys do that, dress in robes and say that. I could, uh, I, could, I, could, I could accept your worship. And I could walk around saying all the things that Jesus said about who he was. Matter of fact, some examples. You know this guy, right? I've talked about him before in Florida. Who strangely recently, after his divorce and lawsuits, he's now taken on the uh, title 666. Because he says in Revelation, that says, in that number there is wisdom. He claims to be God, right? Lives in Florida. Or I just thought I'd give you some that you might remember. Do you remember Wayne Bent in New Mexico? Obviously, guy has some adoring fans here. He claimed to be God as well. Lived in New Mexico, actually got busted for crimes, uh, sex crimes against his followers. This one was quite taken with him. Or how about this one? Remember Laszlo Toth? He went into the, uh, the Vatican with a hammer, started banging, you know, knocking the, the Michelangelo statues and all that. Uh, he claimed to be God. He said I was, he was God. How about this one? Maybe you don't know this one. 
uh, he's been banished from Islam. Matter of fact, he's, a, he's on the hit list of, the, of Islam. Islam wants to kill him. They have a bounty on his head. Ayan Pin is a man who claims to be divinity. He claims to not only be God, he claims to be Jesus reincarnate and Muhammad reincarnate. That's going to get you in trouble. The, the Christians will roll their eyes. The Muslims will want to take your head off. So he's on the run right now. But he is, claims, he claims to be God. And by the way, if you want to worship Ayan Pin, guess what? He'll accept it. And if you say, Ayan Pin, I've sinned against you. Uh, please forgive me. I'm sure he'll forgive your sins. I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But he, he'll definitely take that on as an as assignment. Or this guy, if you want to talk about our friends over in Russia. Have you ever heard of this guy, Torup? He uh, claims to be God and uh, looks more like Jesus than the rest. So I, I don't know. <laughs> And I felt bad as I was doing a survey today, kind of looking at all the people that claim to be God. I thought we got a guy from Florida who's originally uh, from uh, Puerto Rico. And I got an Australian in Thailand and Russia and New Mexico. I thought we needed a Californian. So here's one. Uh, you remember this guy down in San Diego, Marshall Applewhite. And I just love his picture, so I thought I'd throw that up. Okay, so not hard, right? Look at your outline so far. Right? I mean, all I'm saying is that Jesus claimed a lot of stuff about who he was. And he was going around accepting worship, and he was telling people their sins were forgiven. And I'm thinking, every one of these guys on the screen can do that. Every single one of them. But most of those you're going to say are kooks, right? C.S. Lewis rightly said, our professor of lit at Oxford... He said, you can shut him up, speaking of Christ, for a fool. You can spit on him and call him a demon, which you might want to do with these guys that I just showed you on the screen. Or you can fall at his feet and you can call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Right? Just like you can't call that last collage of would-be divine embodied, you know, God in human form, people, you're you're not going to call them good teachers. Either you're going to worship them as God they claim to be, as they claim to be, or you're going to call them a nut or, you know, call them a fool or spit on him. Tell you know, say he's got it. But none of this patronizing nonsense about being a good teacher. I love that, and it's great. It's been used by a lot of people just to think like C.S. Lewis through the problem. You cannot be neutral about this person. So far, what we've said, you've either got to say he's really who he says he is or he's a nut. So let's continue our outline now. With that said, he did divine things. What divine things did he do? Saying things like, I forgive your sins and, hey, come worship me even though you're not supposed to unless I'm God. No big deal. But he did divine things like this. Number three, he gave life. He gave life. And by the way, I'm missing a number five that should be there, so leave room for number five. He gives life. John 5.21, we already read it. It says, for as the Father... Well, did we read this one? I don't know if we did or not. I'll read it to you. As the Father raises the dead and gives life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. We did read that, did we not? Okay? Now that's his claim. Big deal. You claimed it. Right? Here's where the rubber meets the road. John 11. Now again, I'm relying on the fact that you know that the, that the Word of God is not like 
the Book of Mormon or even the Koran or a lot of these books that claim to be revelations from God but do not have the literary veracity or the evidence of being statements from God, the Scripture is wholly different. You need, you know, 20 hours at least to work through that, perhaps, if you're a skeptic. But now I'm looking at a historical account. Those are statements. Hey, I can give life to whoever I want. Really? Prove it. John 11. Jesus, deeply moved, came to the tomb. This is Lazarus. It was a cave and a stone had laid against it. And Jesus said, take the stone away. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. He's been dead for four days. And if you remember the context, he could have gone. He heard about it. He didn't come. He wanted him to get nice and ripe in the grave. To make it very clear, he wasn't unconscious, he, he didn't swoon, he wasn't sleeping, sleepy sleep for a few extra days in a cave, he was dead. Jesus said, verse 40, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? Now the glory of God, you're talking about you having glory, you're talking about you giving life to whomever you will. How is this going? Hmm, maybe, maybe you're God. So they took the stone away. Jesus lifted up his eyes. He said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. I came from heaven. No one else claims to be coming from heaven. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. He was a star, by the way, after that. If you know your Gospels, they wanted to talk to the guy who was dead for four days. That's a big deal. But the accounts are reliable. The eyewitnesses, the, the people that, that mourned his death, who came to his funeral, who now see him alive, that's something those six guys on the screen have never done. Right? I mean, I mean, you got guys down the, around the corner healing migraine headaches and things that I can't prove. But when someone's dead for four days and comes back to life, you're starting to prove that you're someone. How about this one, which we'll be dealing with at the Bren Center this year? John 10, 17 through 20. Just give you the prediction, the, the prophetic statement. John, 17, um, John 10, 17 says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Now, he calls Lazarus out of the grave. Maybe God's going to call Jesus out of the grave. He makes it very clear. I'm going to take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Because he said that, just as the Father has the, has the ability and the authority to give life, I have the ability to give life to whoever I want. And if I lay my life down into death, real death, I got the authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father, and there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them says he has a demon, he's insane, why listen to him? That is, of course, unless you were there, a witness to the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Christ. That's a big deal. So again, that's something that uh, Apple White has not yet done, right? Risen from the dead. So that's now something beyond all of our would-be messiahs or God incarnates. How about this one? He did divine things. He controls nature. He controls nature. 
Why is that a big deal? You don't need to turn to these, but you remember the end of the book of Job. God goes off for three chapters telling everyone how He controls everything in the universe. That He is the one who guards the ocean and He tells it what to do and He makes its waves do this and stop there. And, and there's a sample of it in Job 38. Psalm 107, again, another psalm that we praise Yahweh. The I am, the, the, the proper name of God, who is Yahweh, who is able to still the storm and the waves of the sea. He's able to hush them. And they are glad, we are glad, when the waters are quieted. God is the one who does these things. But of course, that's why we have these events that are so important. They speak volumes about the essence of who Christ is. Matthew 8 24 through 27, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, and the boat was being swamped by the waves, but Christ was asleep. When they went and woke him up, they said, Lord, save us, we're perishing. And he said, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose, and he rebuked the winds and the waves, and then there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the seas obey him? What would the scribes say? They would say, Men don't do that. God does that. That's something none of our would-be messiahs have ever done. Two number fours, which means this should be number five. He creates out of nothing. He creates out of nothing with a word. Things that have an appearance in history of age they never had. Of course, Genesis 1.1 says that's the way God creates. 2 Peter 3 says that's the way God creates. That's the way He destroys. That's the way He creates. He speaks the Word and things come to be. John 1.3 says that nothing has been made that has been made unless Christ made it. So now Christ is the, in the prologue of John. He is exalted as the Creator. Genesis 1 says God, Yahweh, is Creator. Elohim is creator. Adonai is creator. Now, John says Jesus is the creator. And nothing has been made that has been made unless he made it. There's a bit of a conflict unless Jesus is God. One example. Maybe two. John 2.6. Can you look at this with me? John 2.6. Yahweh will share his glory with no one. Right? I just quoted you one. I, I did a couple from memory and a couple other places in Isaiah. It is all over the place in the Bible. The Old Testament is very clear. There is one God, serve him only, no one else to serve anybody else. He is God. Now, I got all these weird contradictions that there's this one like the Son of Man who everyone's going to serve. And I got someone who's going to take glory. Can we start at the bottom of this little narrative here in verse 11? You know, I mean, you see the little heading on the paragraph. This is about the water to wine situation. But it says this in verse 11. This, after he did it all, the first of his signs, supposed to point to something, that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested, now pronouns are important, whose glory? His glory. How did the book of John start? He creates. He's the creator. Nothing was made that has been made if Christ didn't make it. Oh, I know God makes everything. Yahweh makes everything. Elohim, Adonai. But, you know, Jesus is really the creator. He manifests his glory by doing what? Well, you know the story. Verse 6, six stone water jars there. They were there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. 
Jesus says to his servants, fill the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim. And he said, now draw some water, take it out, and take it to the master of the feast. They took it out. When the master of the feast tasted the water, it had now become wine. And they didn't know where it came from, though the servants had drawn the water. They knew it came from Christ saying, here, I'm going to make wine out of water. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and they said, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine comes out. But you've kept the good wine until now. So he makes perfect wine for these people at the wedding feast to drink. How did he do that? Well, he did it with a word. How long does it take to make wine? Well, take a while, I suppose. If it's going to be the best wine at the party, I suppose it's going to take some time. But he's got some, you said out of nothing. No, he had something. He had, uh, he had uh, hydrogen and oxygen molecules. That's what he had. But if you're going to make wine, you do understand you're going to need some of this right here. You need some glucose. You've got to somehow go from H2O to adding a proper amount of, of sugar, hexose. You've got to have that. And that's a pretty complicated little compound there. You need some even more. Some tannic acid, which is usually in the uh, skin of the grapes, and, and that's a really complex thing. As a matter of fact, it's, it's one of the most difficult things to, to think through in terms of the composition of, of what wine is all about. So you need that in the right balance. Oh, you're going to need some yeast enzymes. And those look like this, at least when you sketch them out in your chemistry class. This is how it works, and you're going to need the proper amount of those yeast en enzymes. Then, of course, hopefully not too much, but you're going to need some, some C2H5OH, which is ethanol, right? You've got to have a little bit of that. I'm sure in Christ's wine, not a whole lot, but there's some alcohol in this, which is a pretty complex thing. And then it's very important if it's going to taste right, you've got to have the right pH balance. And all of these mixtures have to be together just right. And Jesus does it with a word so that he can show his glory. What is his glory? That he's the creator. Who's the creator? God is the creator. Who is Jesus? He's, he's God. Pull this off a website, a French winery website. Not the picture. The picture came from some Eastern Orthodox church mosaic, I think. They said this. This is interesting. The study of the chemical components of wine made great progress thanks to the development of the modern methods of, of chromatographic analysis. can't even say it. One knows some 300 chemical bodies today taking part in the composition of wine. Very complex thing. That, that's an easy miracle, right? No, it's not. That's an amazing miracle to where God manifests his glory, God in human form, that is. He did other things creating out of nothing. He did things like this in John 10. You don't need to turn there. You know this one too. He... Uh, he healed the blind man. And here's what they said. After he said all these things about who he was, there was a division among the, We read this earlier. The division among the Jews about these words. Here's the next verse we didn't read. Well, we did read this one. Many of them said he has a demon or he's insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? I don't do this to gross you out. I didn't do a very close-up picture of it. But here's a blind man from birth. I wish, our, I wish we had high def at this point. Well, I've talked to you about that, though, haven't I? Um, there's a lot missing there that he needs to see, right? And we can't, with our modern technology, give him what he needs to make those eyeballs work. He doesn't have what it takes. 
So when Christ does things like takes a blind man, which he did multiple times in his ministry, and he makes him a seeing man in the most complex right, and delicate organ of the body and makes that thing work, he goes from sunken in eye sockets that do not work to eyes that can see. I mean, that's a big deal. That's a manifestation of the glory of God. That's creating something out of nothing. That's not healing a migraine headache at a, at a rally at, you know, with TV cameras on. I mean, this is the creation of something out of nothing. And we could go on. How about bread and fish? Evolutionists say it takes a long time to create a fish, right? <laughs> Jesus created them instantaneously, ready to eat. How about muscle tissue in the forearm of the man with a withered hand? He does it with a word. Create something that didn't exist in a moment with the word of his authority that has, if you were a scientist and could there analyze it, the appearance and history, uh, the appearance of a history and age that it never had. It's a big deal. His contemporaries understood this. His enemies understood it. They called it blasphemy. They picked up stones to stone him when he said in John 10, 30, said, I and the Father are one. And said, well, you know, he says that about us in John 17. We're supposed to be one. That's not what they meant. The Jews understood what they meant. They picked up stones to stone him. And Jesus said, I've done many good works. He said, which of them are you stoning me for? And, Jesus, and, and the Jews answered him, it's not for good work that we're stoning you, but it's for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. His, his enemies understood what he was saying. John 5.18. That's why the Jews were seeking to kill him all the more, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but because he was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. John 8.58. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So, verse 59, they picked up stones to stone him. They knew what he was saying. His enemies knew what they were saying. That's why they crucified him. I already read for you Matthew 26, but you remember that. I'm the Son of Man. You'll see me coming on the clouds, seated at the right hand of the power, coming on the clouds from heaven. High priest tears his robes. He's uttered blasphemy. What should we do? Well, we should kill him. He deserves death. His enemies understood his claims. And, of course, his friends understood his claims. Philippians 2, 5 through 8, one of the best Christological passages in the New Testament. We won't take time to read it because we have no time. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. All things were made by Him in form. In Him dwells the fullness of deity. I mean, these are clear statements about Christ being more than a man. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 is the exact representation of His nature. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the one like a son of man that you can see, of the God that you can't see. All of this could be expanded upon, and I have on many other messages that are all for free on the Focal Point website. And I've already printed those for you in that little box, so you don't need to write them down. But, I mean, if you just want to go through some of these great Christological sections of the Scripture that deal with the divinity of Christ, that He claims to be God, that the Bible says that He's God... 0854-0526-0039-0025. You should be able to search for those numbers on the website and get all those for free. Book of the Week. 
so badly wanted to give you two, but I hate telling you I'm going to give you one and give you two. So I'm sticking with one. Robert Raymond wrote for Mentor, Mentor Press not too long ago. It was a fairly new book, 2003. I guess that's kind of new. Um, if you know Raymond's name, it's because he wrote recently a systematic theology, one volume, but good. This one he wrote on Christ, and I forget how many pages. I would guess 250, maybe 200. It's not that big, but it's not that small. Jesus, divine Messiah, Old and New Testament witness. If you want to go further with what we've talked about tonight, there's a great book for you to dive into. Jesus, divine Messiah. All right, let's pray. Hey, what I'm saying is Jesus is God. <laughs> that's what I was trying to say. Did you get that? I, that's, what I'm, that's what I'm getting at here. Why didn't you just say that? That's what I'm trying to say. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that Jesus has revealed himself in the scriptures to be who the Old Testament looked forward to him being. And I love that about Raymond's book. He spends a lot of time looking at how the Old Testament anticipated someone who was not merely human, but was the image of the invisible God. And we've looked at that. We've thought about the, the incarnation and the pre, uh, pre-incarnate uh, Christ, that this baby was going to be born, who's going to be called the everlasting father, a prince of peace, a mighty God. These are words that, that are just don't compute unless we have a triune God, a second person of this Godhead, this divine fellowship who comes and lives among us in a human form. So, God, I thank you for our study of this. May you help us to even go deeper in our own study and our maybe listening to more messages, uh, digging into good theologies and just reading your word, looking with open eyes at how statements they do not compute to be some rabbi or some good teacher or some man that's exalted. This has to be God in human form. Let us be grounded in this truth that we may be able to worship Christ with a clear conscience and be able to defend the divinity of Christ with apt and, and, uh, and, and capable skill, because this doctrine is under attack. It is the hallmark of most cult groups today. And we need to know that Jesus is God. So God, we look forward to next week as we dig into John 1.1 and spend a lot of time looking at all of that and how the JWs deal with that and how we need to understand a bit about Greek grammar. And, and I just pray we can roll up our sleeves and get into that next week and, and really profit from looking at one passage and what it has to say about, about Christ. So God, thanks for our time. Thanks for our meal. Thanks for our fellowship tonight. Dismiss us now, please, with a better understanding of who your son is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.